This excursion in history takes place in the late 1790s. John Adams has just been elected the second president of the United States, and his job was to be most difficult. He would have to follow in the footsteps of George Washington, and that would be a tough act to follow. Washington, with his great prestige and stature, had been able to draw the discordant factions of the country together during his administration. But Adams did not command the prestige and stature that Washington did. And there were those in the United States who still distrusted the new federal government. They saw the federal government as some type of a powerful monster, a monster which, if not watched closely, could take away the freedoms and the rights that they had just recently acquired. Once Adams had taken office, dissension toward the government grew. The Jay Treaty, which the United States had signed with England during Washington's administration, was not to have its effect until Adams had taken office. The first repercussion from the treaty was the formation of a new political party, which was in opposition to the treaty and to the Federalist Party. The second effect of the treaty was that it brought a worsening of diplomatic relations with France. The French government felt that since they had helped the Americans achieve their independence, the United States should now help the French in their war, which was raging with the British. Since we had just concluded a treaty with England, the French felt that they had been sold down the river. Trials and tribulations now took place as the French government began to seize American merchant ships that arrived in France, and our relations with France worsened to such a degree that it could well lead to war if they were not improved. Adams sought a peaceable solution to the problem with France. One of the best ways to resolve a situation, he thought, was to sit down and talk out the differences. So Adams sent three men to France to see the French directorate. Certainly, once they sat down and talked about the situation, a solution could be found. The three men sent by Adams to France were Thomas Pinckney, John Marshall, and Eldridge Jerry. It would be their job to negotiate the problem. Anything would be better than hostilities. The three men sailed for France. It would be a journey that would take them several weeks. Once they had landed on the coast of France, they would have to go overland by stagecoach to Paris, and that journey would take them about two or three days. As the evenings drew near, the stagecoach with its passengers would stop at one of the colorful wayside inns, and it would be here that the passengers would reside the night, and on the next day they would continue their journey toward Paris. The evening before they arrived in Paris, while relaxing in front of the fireplace of one of the inns, our men were discussing the political situations of the day. They were also discussing what they would say to the French directorate. At this point in their journey, they were approached by three Frenchmen, a sort of an unofficial visit. Good evening, gentlemen, they said. We understand that you have come from the United States to see the directorate. And as you know, no one gets to see the French directorate unless, of course, the way has first been paved for them. Our representatives looked at each other in amazement. Who were these Frenchmen? How did they know about their mission? 
And what could these Frenchmen have to do with their dealings with the French directorate? The questions that they had asked themselves were answered as the three Frenchmen now informed them that if the United States government would pay a small fee, they would see to it that an audience with the French directorate would be assured. The price? A mere $240,000. Our representatives stared at each other as if struck dumb. This was incredible. It was unbelievable. The conference came to an end as our representatives informed the trio that they would have to consult the president on the matter. As to what course of action would be taken by the government of the United States, they did not know. The following day, the men drafted a letter to President Adams and informed him of the situation. They stated the predicament in simple terms. Certain persons in the French government were demanding $240,000 tribute for the privilege of allowing the United States representatives to speak to the French directorate. As soon as the letter was drafted and signed by the representatives, it was dispatched to President Adams. The dispatch took a few weeks to reach the United States, and when President Adams received the communication, he seemed puzzled as to what to do. Certainly, Adams understood what the French were asking, but he was puzzled as to what he, the President of the United States, could do. You see, the power of the presidency had not yet found its limits. That is to say, Adams did not know just how far the presidential powers went. So President Adams decided to go before Congress and tell them the situation. He would let the Congress of the United States then decide what course of action he should follow. Adams did go before Congress, and there he explained the situation to them. He explained how three Frenchmen, Mr. X, Mr. Y, and Mr. Z, as the president called them, had approached our representatives and had asked of them $240,000 for the privilege of talking with the French directorate. When the Congress heard this news, they went into an uproar. One representative from South Carolina, Robert Harper, emotional, highly emotional, jumped to his feet and began shouting, millions for defense, but not one cent for tribute. The war fever was on. Secretary of State Timothy Pickering immediately recommended to Adams that he ask Congress to declare war on France. However, to the President of the United States, war is a momentous decision, and Adams, knowing that there had to be a better solution than that of war, refused to do so. He refused to go along with the majority opinion that we should declare war on France. If there was to be a war, France would have to take the initiative, not the United States. The Congress, however, had different ideas. They decided that indeed this was an insult, and that if a war were to break out, the United States must have a navy. So for the first time in its history, the United States Congress created the Department of the Navy, and its first job was to begin to build ships. Our first Secretary of the Navy was Benjamin Stoddart. He was given this awesome task of constructing these warships. His first chore was to decide what class of ship would be built. The three classes of warships used by other navies at this time, especially the British, were 
the sloop, a 20-gun ship, 10 to the broadside, the frigate, a 40-gunner, 20 to the broadside, and the man-of-war, a 120-gun ship, 60 to the broadside. Stoddart's belief was that the frigate would best suit our purpose. It was highly maneuverable, quick, and could be deadly in attacks. Stoddart's main problem was not in building the ships, but in arming them. From where would he procure the armaments that were needed for outfitting the ships? The United States had no factories with which to make such cannon. We had no industry for the production of large armaments whatsoever. Stoddart's solution for this problem was to come from an unsuspected quarter of the world. The solution for arming the ships came from England. England, already at war with France, was more than willing to give the United States the necessary cannon to outfit her naval vessels. And so it was that the United States began its quest as a naval power. The work was slow, but little by little the ships took size, shape, and form and were launched. One of our first frigates was the USS Constellation. Her captain, Captain Truxton, took her out to sea. To do what? For the most part, the job of our meager navy was to guard and protect the United States merchant vessels, to keep them from falling into the hands of the French who were seizing them as fast as they could. Eventually, a confrontation must come. The USS Constellation versus the French ship L'Insurgent. It was a battle like all naval battles, the tacking of the wind, trying to get the most advantageous position, the closing of the two ships, closer, closer, and then the broadsides. The war between France and the United States, even though undeclared, like all wars, took its toll of life. There are many people and groups of people that loathe war for whatever cause. The Quaker religion is such a group it is founded on the ideas of pacifism. One such Quaker in the United States was a man by the name of George Logan. He was deeply distressed by this war and felt that something had to be done to end it. He decided to sell all that he had. He would go to France. He would try to see individuals there and end this war, even though other people with more prestige and more influence had tried and had failed. He George Logan would try. So George Logan went to France. There, and unbeknownst to him, the powers of France were also seeking an end to this undeclared war, and they sought him out. And so it was that George Logan would meet the great Talleyrand and go before the French directorate. It was from them that he was to receive a letter a letter that he was to deliver to President Adams. The request which was made of the president by the French was that if he, the president, would send an emissary to France, certainly there could be talks between the two countries which could end the hostilities once and forever. Furthermore, the friendship between France and the United States could once again continue. Logan returned to the United States with the letter from the French officials, and almost everyone was astounded with the news that an ordinary, everyday citizen had made peace with France. Was it true? Did it really happen? Yes. 
There were the French seals and signatures of the French officials. Of course, it was all true. And so it was that George Logan became the man who ended a war. But the ironic thing about Logan's great feat was the reward he received for his role as peacemaker. The Congress of the United States was to pass an act. In his honor? Rather, the act which bears his name today, the Logan Act, forbids a private United States citizen from interfering in the normal diplomatic proceedings of the United States government under penalty of fine and imprisonment. But the war wasn't over yet, and more was to happen. The Federalist Party, feeling great opposition, knew that in the election of 1800, they would have a very difficult time defeating Thomas Jefferson. But, as Alexander Hamilton told John Adams, prolong the war, continue it, because during time of war, people will not change presidents, and the Federalist Party will be elected for another four years. Now was the moment of truth for John Adams. Now would be the moment of truth for any man. Adams, a man of strong moral character, refused to subordinate American lives to further his own career or to further the cause of the Federalist Party. So John Adams, second president of the United States, made his decision, and an envoy was sent to France. The envoy sent to France was William Vans Murray, and he officially ended the war by signing the Treaty of Morfontaine. Within little or no time at all, it was something that was forgotten. It seemed to be like a bad dream, a nightmare, something that happened, but really didn't happen. And as for John Adams, he lost his second bid for the presidency. He lost the election of 1800 to Thomas Jefferson. And so from the pages of the past, we learn lessons from history. Maybe we can gain from these lessons we learn in history, and maybe we cannot. But as old proverbs have it, either people will learn their lessons from history, or they will repeat those mistakes again and again until the lessons are learned.